0: One of the um, defining moments of the American Civil Rights Movement was the Montgomery bus boycott, 1956. You understand the idea of a bus boycott. People decide not to ride on city buses, but instead to walk miles in order to arrive at their destination. Not wearing 2024 Nike shoes either. <laughs> Walking miles to arrive at their destination. Why? In order to serve others. In order to make the city a better place for others. In order to make our nation A place full of liberty for all. You understand the idea of a bus boycott. Well, somewhere in the middle of the Montgomery bus boycott, Martin Luther King Jr. remembers meeting a woman one evening at a church service. He refers to her simply as Mother Pollard. He remembers that Mother Pollard was an elderly woman. Very poor. Uneducated. And yet this elderly woman was participating in the bus boycott. She was walking miles on her two feet without Nike shoes in her old age. Why? For the sake of others, for the good of her city. And I think perhaps out of a degree of compassion and concern for Mother Pollard, Dr. King asked her, how she was doing after walking so many so many miles to arrive at this church service and mother pollard's answer has become iconic mother pollard said to dr king my feet is tired but my soul is rested you got to love that right here in the middle of this bus boycott Walking miles to serve others. My feet is tired, but my soul is rested. And whenever I hear Mother Pollard's words, there's a question that kind of grows in my chest as a Christian. And the question goes something like this. What leads to Christians who say things like that? What leads to disciples who live their lives like that? See, some of us have been around kinds of Christian teaching that will get your feet really tired. Like you got to do this and this and this and this. And once you're done doing those things, then you need to do this and this and this and this. And once you're doing those things, if you want to be a really great Christian, you also got to do this and this and this and this. And there's a lot of tired feet, but not a lot of rest for the soul. You know what I'm talking about? Others of us, however, have been around kinds of Christian teaching that aim to soothe your soul. To make everything nice and sweet and syrupy and easy as soothing as possible. And it might lead you to feel rested on a Sunday afternoon, but it's never really going to lead you to get your feet tired in the process of serving anybody else. And in the end, it might leave us a little empty inside. Realizing that I've been told that it's all sweet and easy, but how come my life doesn't seem to line up with some of the things that Jesus seems to call me to? We might call these two approaches to Christianity Marine Corps Christianity and Lazy Boy Christianity. One approach to Christianity that leads us to be the few and the proud who say, I will never rest until the day I die. Marine Corps Christianity. Amen. Now we've got the Navy and Marine thing going on over here. My apologies. I should have been more discerning. <laughs> Or Lazy Boy Christianity. Plenty of opportunity to kick up your feet on a Sunday afternoon. But not a whole lot of sense of mission or meaning in life. And my question is, how can we avoid these dangers of Marine Corps Christianity and Lazy Boy Christianity? What is it that produces disciples like Mother Pollard's? Disciples who care enough about other people to get their feet tired in the process of serving. But disciples who can testify even after walking miles in the service of others. My soul is rested. What creates disciples like that? I think our passage today gives us helpful insight and helpful wisdom along those lines. And as we move in that direction of trying to figure out something of an answer to those questions, I want to draw your attention to three elements of this passage. Three things that we need to notice if we're going to understand what's going on here in this important passage in Matthew chapter 20. The first thing we need to notice is this. This passage kind of begins, in a way, with a question of ambition. The tension of this passage, I should say, begins with a question of ambition. Have you ever known Christians who want to be better than everybody else? They're kind of annoying, aren't they? Yes, we are, someone just whispered. Thank you. You just skip straight to application. Moving on to point number two. <laughs> Christians can be a little bit annoying like that. In fact, even in our church... I mean even in our churches, even in your community group, even in your fellowship group. Can't it sometimes be the case that even while we're do- talking about really important things or even as we're serving together in really important ways or even as we're prioritizing good things, there can be this impulse that says, I don't just want to do what Jesus said. I want to do it better than everybody else. I don't just want to be among Jesus's people I want to be better than all the rest of Jesus' people. We might call this a kind of spiritual pride. And we can smell this spiritual pride beginning in verse 20. Here comes the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Thunder mama. Zebedee kind of means thunder. Two of Jesus' disciples have apparently recruited their mom, Thunder mom, to come and make a request to Jesus on their behalf. Now why do I say the disciples did? Because when Jesus replies to them, His answer is to y'all, not just to her. His answer is to you in the plural. So here are the sons of Thunder... And the Thunder Boys recruit Thunder Mama and say, Mama, can you go and ask Jesus something on our behalf? And so she comes. And she kneels before him. This is a good start. She asks him something. Listen, kneeling and praying are generally good things in Christianity. And Jesus asks her, what do you want? And she says, say to these two sons of mine, or say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now, she's got a lot of stuff right at this point, doesn't she? She recognizes that Jesus has a kingdom. Uh, She's right on in that aspect of her theology. She recognizes that Jesus is the sort of person before whom she should bow. She's right on in her piety and worship. She brings her requests to Jesus. She's right on in her prayer. And yet, even with her right theology and her right piety and her right worship and her right praying, something is askew. I think she's understood something that Jesus says in the first few verses that Elise read. In verse 18, Jesus refers to himself as, quote, the Son of Man. Sometimes when we read the phrase Son of Man, we think Jesus is just pointing out, look, I'm a real human. But if we understand a little bit of the background to this title from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Bible, specifically from Daniel chapter 7, we realize that Jesus is claiming for himself a unique status that Daniel looked forward to when one like the Son of Man would be given all authority over all the nations of the planet. All the nations of the world. Will be ruled by one ruler in God's kingdom, according to Daniel, one who is described as the Son of Man. The great King of God's kingdom, we might say. And the Thunder Boys and Thunder Mama seem to pick up on this and say, Aha, now we're getting to what we were really hoping for power and glory. It's about time, Jesus. It's about time we get to this power and glory stuff. Ruling over all the nations. That's something I can sign up for. And by the way, Jesus, because our theology and our worship and our praying and our understanding of this whole lordship over the whole world thing is so accurate, we've got one little humble question for you. Can we sit at your right hand and your left hand? Can we rule with you in front of all the rest? When we're there in glory, one little question, not so much to ask, is it? Except, despite all their good theology, despite all their piety, despite their accuracy in worship and prayer, what's wrong here? Spiritual pride. Something in here is off target significantly. And so Jesus answers them in verse 22, You do not know what you are asking to sit at my right hand and my left hand in glory. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We're able! Jesus, I imagine... Jesus smiles and nods and says to them in verse 23, "Well, there's some truth in that. You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left hand, it's not mine to grant. It's for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father." But here's another plot twist. You see, it turns out that spiritual pride is not confined to the Thunder Boys and Thunder Mama. Verse 24, and when the ten heard it, they're a little bit upset. You see, they recognize, like we do as we read this, the Thunder Boys aren't just saying, isn't it great that all of us Christians have a seat at the table with the Lord in his kingdom? The other 10 disciples realize they're not just saying, isn't it great that we have a seat at the wedding feast? They realize that the thunder boys are asking, Jesus, between you and me, aren't we the ones who are ahead of all the rest? The other disciples realize that the thunder boys are saying, Jesus, let's keep this just between us. But all those other clowns, I'm glad they're going to make it into the kingdom. But don't we deserve the seats of honor above and beyond and ahead of everybody else? The other ten are indignant. They're indignant perhaps at the audacity of the Thunder Boys and their mama. And they're indignant perhaps because they didn't think to ask first. This passage, first of all, it leads us to come face to face with what we might call the ugliness of spiritual pride. Pride which didn't just exist in the Thunder Boys and their mama. It tends to reside among many of us disciples, doesn't it? In their indignation, the ten sound kind of grumpy. It's what spiritual pride tends to do to us, isn't it? Leads us to grumble against others. Leads us to grumble against those who have taken a step forward. Leads us to grumble about those who we think are a step behind. Leads us to grumble about anybody and anything. Listen, if there's a lot of grumbling in your life, you might be wise to check for spiritual pride in your heart. And this passage, it challenges us to question what ambitions we might be chasing after. And not only the kinds of ambitions like the rich young ruler had in his life. Recently in the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus, Jesus met a man who had it all. He was rich. He was young. He was influential. He was a religious guy. He knew his Bible. What a catch. But Jesus confronts him and tells him whoever would be first. Jesus tells him many who are first will be last. and Many who are currently viewed as the last and the least, they will be first. And you see, Jesus here in this passage is drawing attention to the fact that it's not just those who are obsessed with worldly things like wealth who have problems with pride and who need to be confronted by the Gospel. Listen, even among those of us who are devoted to following Jesus like James and John and their mama, and even those of us who have good habits of worship and prayer and good theology to back it all up. Listen, even people like me, and even brothers and sisters like you, we need to stop and question the ambitions that exist in our own hearts sometimes. Am I seeking your kingdom come, your will be done? Am I seeking after hallowed be your name? Or is my ambition just to be a little further ahead than the riffraff behind me? This passage challenges us to question the ambitions in our own hearts. But after this question of ambition, the second thing this passage puts in front of us is a redefinition of Greatness. It begins begins in uh, verse 25. Jesus says, "You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them." Gentiles is a word that basically means nations, any ethnicity other than Judaism." Jesus says, "You know that the rulers in all the other nations, all the nations of the world, you know how they all work? They take authority and they use it over people. You get that idea, right? Lording it over. Jesus says, you know how rulers work in all the other nations of the world? Their great ones exercise authority over them. He's highlighting a problem that exists in our world problem that we've all encountered one way or another. The problem is that responsibility is too easily twisted into oppression. Authority too easily becomes an opportunity to crush others. Leadership too easily turns into a way for me to boost my own ego, to elevate myself just at least a little bit higher than the others. You know how the rulers of all the nations of the world do it. They take their leadership responsibilities as reason to be over others. But Jesus says, Not so among you. The great ones, let's put it in scare quotes, of the world, have their own definitions of greatness and what it would take to make a person or a family or a city. Or a nation great. And Jesus says, Not so among you disciples. Don't take your definition of greatness from the way that the politicians operate. Don't take your definition of greatness from the way that the wealthy ones operate. Don't take your definition. From the way that the influential and famous ones do it. And listen, I think we need to pay attention, right? Because there are politicians in our country who want to convince us this is what true greatness is all about. Such politicians exist in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and among independents and whoever your group is that you think has got it all put together. There are political leaders in our nation who want to convince you this is what true greatness really looks like. Jesus says not so among you. I think we need to be careful in American culture, which is so easily obsessed with stories of financial success, chasing after a vision of what a good life looks like, formed in the image of this great CEO or that great executive. Jesus says, you know how they all do it. They lord it over others. Not so among you. I think we need to be careful In the Instagram generation. Of just shaping our ideas of greatness. After the pattern of those influencers with the most likes and the most follows. And the most sponsorships. And the most whatever. Jesus is not so among you. And then he gives us a new definition of greatness. Greatness. You know how the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Be careful, churches, Jesus is saying. Too often, even those of us in the church have been quick to pattern our ways after the ways of the nations. Not so among you. What should it look like instead, Jesus? Here's his answer. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. See, if we're not going to follow the way of politicians or those who are wealthy or those who are popular and influential, who are we going to follow? Jesus says, I'll give you another model to follow. The model of the Son of Man, the King of Kings, the ruler of the whole world who came into the world To do what according to him? Not to be served by others, but with this agenda, to serve others. This past week, I, um, I got a, a message that a dear older friend of mine passed away. For, um, I think about five years uh, I used to go over to a friend's house In Wheaton Mr. Carlson He tutored me in Greek He had taught Greek at Wheaton College When he was younger His mind was still sharp as a razor Even in his 80s So every Thursday morning I would travel over to his house And I would knock on the door And I would come inside And I would be treated with utmost love and hospitality and kindness and warmth as I was welcomed by Mr. and Mrs. Carlson into their home. Week after week, I showed up and there's tea on the table waiting for me. There's a seat already set there. There were smiles on their faces to welcome me in. Somewhere along the way, Mrs. Carlson's back was getting worse and worse in her 80s. She was barely able to get up out of her chair and move around. I started to realize what a sacrifice it had been for her to have tea prepared for me on the table every morning when I showed up. One day I came over and I sat in the chair beside her where she was sitting, writing something furiously on a piece of paper in front of her. And I asked her about her back. It's getting worse and worse. I've got another story about her back, which I'll tell you another time, perhaps. Her back's getting worse. She's in a lot of pain. She can barely move around. It's a woman who's spent her whole life serving others. On the mission field in Ecuador, on the mission field in Hong Kong. She spent her whole life serving other people, and now she can barely move. She's stuck in a little chair by a window in a little tiny old house in Wheaton. And I'm asking her how she's doing. I just care about her back, I just care about her. And she shows me, with great joy on her face, the letter that she's been writing. She tells me, the Lord doesn't have me in Ecuador right now. The Lord doesn't have me in Hong Kong. The Lord has me here in Wheaton. But at the moment, the Lord hasn't given me the ability to move around much. So it feels like there's not much I can do for other people. But then I found out I can write letters to men who are in prison. So while I'm here in my chair, I write letters to men who are in prison and I tell them about Jesus. Blown away by the example of Mrs. Carlson. She spends her life serving in such a way that when she can't even get up and move around anymore, she's looking for ways to sit in her chair For the sake of others. To serve others even while she's sitting in her chair in her living room in her 80s. And of course the point of that story is not to say that if you want to live your life with greatness. You need to move to Ecuador or Hong Kong. It's not to say that if you want to live your life with greatness. You need to write letters to people who are in prison But I think you see what Mrs. Carlson is modeling, right? She's not just living for herself. and She's got no sense of status, propping herself up over other people. If she's got a pen and paper and time to write a letter to men who are forgotten in prison, by golly, she's going to do that to serve others for the glory of God. And I ask you, what does it look like for you to live a life devoted to this kind of definition of greatness? What does it look like for you maybe to tire out your feet like Mrs. Pollard? Getting up and moving? Moving? And doing something that might leave you a little bit tired at the end of the day. What does it look like to use your feet? Or if your feet aren't functioning so well, what does it look like for you to sit in the chair in your living room and serve others while you're there? What does it look like to live our lives serving others and not simply serving ourselves and our own interests? Maybe let me put it more simply for you. What does it look like for you to live your life in service of others? Following Jesus' redefinition of greatness. Not living to be served, but to serve. What does that mean for you? Last week, Michael brought up the category of kingdom kingdom What do we call these? Kingdom resolutions. Some of you have made New Year's resolutions and already broken them. What if we made some kingdom resolutions that are worth sticking with for a few years or a few decades? Slowly plodding along for the good of others and the glory of God. What are some kingdom resolutions that you might make so that your life can actually be lived, not just for you, but for the sake of serving others. Many of you are already doing this, and you don't need to add something to your plate. But I wonder if lazy boy Christianity has been a bit of a temptation for some of us. If we might need to pause in front of these words of Jesus where he redefines greatness not as being served but as serving others. I wonder if we need to pause in front of these words of Jesus and just say I'm not doing lazy boy Christianity anymore. My schedule this year needs to look a little different than it did last year. I need to make some commitments this year that I didn't make last year to serve other people. I need to start praying and asking the Lord to open up an opportunity, maybe as simple as writing letters to men in prison. I need to start asking the Lord and talking to brothers and sisters in Christ, what would it look like for me with the time and opportunities and gifts that I have? How can I actually go and serve other people? Maybe for a few it will look like mentoring a woman over at Life Spring here in Aurora or mentoring a man in need of a mentor over at Wayside here in Aurora. Maybe for some of you it will look like becoming a friendship partner for brothers and sisters in Christ or for neighbors who do not know Christ who are moving here from around the world from dangerous backgrounds and arriving here in our area as refugees. And who'd need friends to just help them with simple things like buying groceries and figuring out the difference between a bill and junk mail in the United States. It's hard for some of us, right? <laughs> Maybe for some of you, it looks like one of these things. Maybe for some of you, it looks like redevoting yourself to serving some of the. Older brothers and sisters in our congregation, some of the chronologically gifted, as our sister Sandy likes to describe them. This morning at the Deaconing Study Group over here on the other side of the building, Kevin and Sandy Acuff were just describing one of their simple habits of serving other people, which looks like this. When we have leftovers, we take some of them to Mrs. Olson. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a picture of the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ? And listen, as we listen to the teaching of our Lord Jesus, who says things like the last shall be first, and whoever would be great among y'all must be servants. I'm telling you, taking some leftovers to Mrs. Olson. That might just be greatness as Jesus would define it. So here in this passage, we need to see this question about ambitions. And maybe we need to question some of our own ambitions in life. We need to see this redefinition of greatness. And maybe we need to redefine how we're pursuing a good life ourselves. In his very last sermon, by the way. Dr. Martin, his very last sermon in his home congregation, I should say. Dr. King was preaching on these words of Jesus. And he had a sweet little saying in that sermon. He said, I love this. He called it a new definition of greatness. I love this new definition of greatness. Because it means, and here's the quote. It means everybody can be great. Because everybody can serve. You get that idea? In the kingdom of God, anybody could be great because you know what? Anybody could serve. I wonder if some of us need to step away from the comforts of lazy boy Christianity and start moving our feet toward a Mrs. Olson or toward Life Spring, or toward Wayside once in a while, toward some friends who just moved here from another place toward a brother or sister in need, toward a family with little kids that are feeling just absolutely overwhelmed by everything going on, toward a friend who's feeling down. I wonder if some of us need to hear a new definition of greatness and we need to not just say, well, that's nice that Jesus said something like that, but we need to redefine greatness and the pursuit of greatness in our own lives by making some adjustments in our calendar. Maybe even beginning this week. We need to question our ambitions. We need to redefine greatness. But there's a third thing in this passage. A final thing that we need to notice. Something that is too often overlooked in this passage. Not only does this passage introduce us to a question of ambition. And a redefinition of greatness. This passage also puts in front of us a ransom for many. This passage is elegantly bookended by an astonishing revelation from Jesus Christ. At the beginning of this passage that Elise read a few minutes ago, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of, the son of Man, the great King of God's kingdom. But then, what does he say about the great King of God's kingdom? He says in verse 18, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and He will be raised on the third day. And then Jesus ends this passage Coming back to this idea of the son of man who must suffer. And he says in verse 28, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to do what? To give his life as a what? As a ransom for many. See, this passage is elegantly bookended by this profound theological idea that yes, there is a crown in the future of Jesus Christ. But there is a cross that precedes that crown. Yes, there is a supreme status, a name above all other names. But there is suffering that must precede that status. Jesus Christ makes crystal clear that while He intends for His life to be an example, and let me pause there for one second and say, He does intend for His life to be a pattern for us. It's exactly what He's saying. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. But while he thinks his life should be an example for his followers, Jesus Christ is crystal clear. He came to be much more than an example. He came to be a ransom for many. You understand the idea of a ransom? picture is the picture of someone who is enslaved captured without freedom and running awfully low on hope that represents us in this picture by the way left to ourselves enslaved by sin and selfishness The New Testament can say, captured by the enemy, the devil, to do his will. And running awfully low on hope. I've been there, I don't know about you. This is us in this picture. But according to this picture, Jesus Christ came into this world not only to be a strong moral example, but to be a ransom, which refers to this idea of liberating those enslaved, setting free those who were once enslaved and in shackles to sin and self, setting free those who were following the ways of the devil, setting free those who were running awfully low on hope. It's an idea of liberation. And here Jesus says, I came not just to set an example of how you can live a better lifestyle, I came to set you free. That's what that idea for signifies. In the idea of a ransom for many. It's not only that that ransom is good for us, suggests that he is a ransom given in place of us given as our substitutes explaining further why the son of man must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and die on a cross why did he have to do that Not simply to set an example for us of how we can do moral good in the face of suffering, but to set us free by dying in our place, by being a ransom for me, and you, and us, and many across the ages and around the globe. I want to come back to that question I was asking about earlier, the question about what protects us from Marine Corps Christianity. I mean, Jesus gives us inspiring words. Use your life. You want to be great, then use it in service of others. Great! But what protects us from just going and going and going and saying, I won't rest until I die? Saints around the world and across the centuries have joined together to say it something like this. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. And in fact, I want to modify this because He's not just a ransom for me, He's a ransom for many. And so we need to reframe that whole hymn and say, our sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Our sin, not in part but in whole, is nailed to his cross and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O our soul. And therefore, we sing, it is well. What do you say after that? It is well. It is well with our souls. With our souls. It is well, it is well with our souls. Why? Not because of how hard we've been serving everybody else. But because we see this greater reality of the Son of Man who came and loved us and gave Himself for us. To set us free. And it's in seeing that, the ransom for many, it's in seeing that, that our sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to His cross and we bear it no more. That's what teaches us to say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. It is well. You see, if we want to learn to be and to make disciples like Mother Pollard. Disciples who can say, My feet is tired, but my soul is still rested. We do need an example. Because left to ourselves, we're just going to keep following all the worldly examples around us. We do need an example to call us into selfless service of others. Brothers and sisters, we need so much more than an example, we need a Savior. Thanks be to God that he sent his very own son to be the ransom for many that I and you and we and many across the ages and around the world so desperately need that we might be set free To find rest now and forevermore in and with him. What does this passage call us to? I'll let Jesus have the last word. Whoever would be great among us must be a servant. Even as the son of man, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, came not to be served, but to serve. And what is more, to give his life as a liberating ransom for us and for so many. Praise the Lord, O my soul. At this time.